If you have your Bible with you, would you open to the book of 1 Peter with me? 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 13. I'm going to read several verses for you out of this first chapter, and I want to remind you again, if we took time to go step by step through everything that is shared in this book and in the, the following book, 2 Peter, we would be here well into the winter. And so all we can do is lift a couple of thoughts out of the passages that we're reading. And this morning we're going to do that. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This is really good. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now keep your Bibles open to that passage. We'll skip around just a little bit, but we're going to come back, and that is an anchor point for us this morning. Just out of curiosity... Have you ever seen this expression or heard this expression? Here it is. Outlook determines outcome. If you've heard that before, just raise your hand. All right, maybe you're not familiar with that one. How about this one? Attitude determines action. Anybody ever heard those? Boy, they're all around us. You can see examples of how they work. Outlook determines outcome and attitude determines action. It is all around us. If you pay attention in light of those two sayings, you will see them illustrated repeatedly. You don't even have to look around you in the world that we live in. You can look right into scripture and see both of these. Let's take the first one and I'll, I'll show you an example of it. Outlook determines outcome. If I really wanted to illustrate that perfectly, I think I would take you back to the Old Testament, to Genesis chapter 12 and 13. There you find the story of Lot and Abraham as they are traveling into the promised land, as they are coming into a new place to live. They've been traveling with one another for a while. Their herds have been growing. Their families have been growing. Their possessions have been growing. And the time comes when they're going to have to separate because they cannot keep their herds together. They cannot keep their families together. There's no way that the land can sustain it. So they have to go different directions. When it comes time to separate and do that very thing, to choose their own paths and go different ways, Abraham gives Lot first choice of where he wants to go. Now you have to understand where they're at. They're standing in the hill country above a town known as Sodom. Now you've probably heard of Sodom before. It's oftentimes mentioned with another town called Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. They are not good places. In fact, they are as evil as it comes. 
So Abraham and Lot are standing in the hill country above these two places, and Abraham says to Lot, hey, you choose which way you want to go. Do you want to go down into the valley where those cities are at, or do you want to go up into the hill country further than we are now? You choose. You go one direction, I will go the other. And Lot says, I want to go down. I want to be in the valley. I want to be near those cities. In fact, you can read all of this in Genesis 12 and 13, but this is exactly how it sounds when Lot chooses that. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now listen to this. This is chapter 13, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That's where Lot wanted to go. He was not ignorant of who these people were, and he chose to set up housekeeping in the shadow of Sodom. Interestingly enough, because of that choice, Abraham would have to go and rescue him once. He had been looted and pillaged and lost everything that he owned, the women and the children that traveled with him, all of his livestock, all of his possessions. Abraham heard about it while he was living in the hill country, and he had to go and get Lot out of the mess that he was in. Thankfully, in that particular case, Abraham was able to not only rescue Lot, but he got back all of the people that had been taken, and he got back all of his possessions. You would think that that would be enough to make Lot say, I'm getting out of this place. This is as evil as anyone has ever seen. I'm not staying here. But Lot's outlook was for the world. His outlook was for his own pleasures and his own desires. So he stayed there. He stayed there in this wicked, evil place. Abraham rescued him once. God would come and get him the second time. And the cost would be much greater for Lot when God had to come and get him the second time. Outlook determined the outcome. Now flip the nickel over and what you see is Abraham going up into the hill country, devoting himself to his business, but more than that, to his relationship with God. This is what the Bible says. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Outlook determines outcome. They have completely different stories. Abraham focused his mind and his heart on the things of God, and he was blessed accordingly. Lot focused his mind and his heart on the things of the world, and he struggled accordingly. Outlook determines outcome. See how that works? Where you set your eyes determines the outcome. Now, here's this second story, though. Attitude determines action. Or not the second story, the, the second statement. Attitude determines action. That is also defined for us in Scripture in some wonderful places. Like 1 Peter chapter 1. Take a look again at how the passage we read started. Just how it started. This is verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all about attitude. And it actually determines the actions that we will take if we follow Peter's teaching. 
if we allow our minds to be prepared for action and we are sober-minded and our hope is fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we will live in a relationship with God that is ever-growing. That is ever-growing. That's pretty cool. But it's all about our attitude. What do we desire? What are we focused on? And Peter will take us through a couple of things that really help us shape our attitude for growth. Hope and holiness. Both of those things will come out in this first chapter of the first letter that he writes. Hope and holiness. They help shape how we think. They help us determine where our mind comes to rest. So let's start with the first one. We're going to start with biblical hope and what it really is. Now, it's going to take us just a little while to get to that, so you hang with me all the way through this. I like the way Charles Swindoll says this. Take a look. Hope is a wonderful gift from God, a source of strength and courage in the face of life's harshest trials. Listen one more time. Hope is a wonderful gift from God, a source of strength and courage in the face of life's harshest trials. Now, he illustrates, Swindoll does, how that works in some very practical ways. We'll walk you through them. I think there's a dozen. Here you go. When we are trapped in a tunnel of misery, hope points to the light at the end. When we are overworked and exhausted, hope gives us fresh energy. When we are discouraged, hope lifts our spirits. When we are tempted to quit, hope keeps us going. When we lose our way and confusion blurs the destination, hope dulls the edge of panic. When we struggle with a crippling disease or a lingering illness, hope helps us persevere beyond the pain. When we fear the worst, hope brings reminders that God is still in control. When we must endure the consequences of bad decisions, Hope fuels our recovery. When we find ourselves unemployed, hope tells us we still have a future. When we are forced to sit back and wait, hope gives us the patience to trust. When we feel rejected and abandoned, hope reminds us we're not alone. We'll make it. And number 12, when we say our final farewell to someone we love, hope in the life beyond gets us through our now, at the end of this list that Swindoll puts together in his beautiful definition of biblical hope, he, he wraps it up this way. He summarizes it like this. Put simply, when life hurts and dreams fade, nothing helps like hope. Hope isn't merely a nice option that helps us temporarily clear a hurdle. It's essential to our survival. And Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, with all of that in mind, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on Jesus. There's a reason for that, and it's going to become very evident to you in just a minute. 
But I want us to push pause for a second and look at the great hope that Peter calls out for us because he takes this idea that is so incredibly practical in everyday living and he places it underneath an umbrella in Scripture that will drive us to stay with God all the way to the end. He refers to it as the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, did you catch that when we read through it the first time? Let's do it again, verse 13. This time, look for how he brings this out. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that is an interesting thing for Peter to just kind of slide into this discussion. He doesn't build everything around it, though eventually he will in his writing. He just kind of slides this in. The revelation of Jesus Christ, are you ready for this? Is the exact title of the last book of the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book that we know as Revelations. It is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the wonderfully cool thing. Peter wrote this 40 years before John would write the Revelation, before he would bring out that prophetic apocalyptic book, which is all about the second coming of Christ. That's what the book of Revelations is all about. And remember, its actual title is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so now Peter's telling us to set our hope fully on Jesus as we get closer and closer to this event. Now I want you to see how Revelation starts so that you can tie these two things together. And you should. In your Bibles, you need to figure out a way to draw an arrow from First and Second Peter to the book of Revelation. And one of the easiest ways to do that might be to underline the revelation of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Draw a line out to the margin of your Bible and write Revelations, or last book of the Bible. That's a good way to draw that arrow. So, with all of that in mind, this idea of the revelation of Jesus Christ, I want you to see how the book begins. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen for you. This is the first three verses of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we are progressing ever closer to the second coming, to the return of Jesus. By the way, this is one of the most ignored doctrines in all of the church. It is overlooked by so many people in Christ that it is staggering to even think about. The hope that people have in the return of Jesus diminishes and wanes the longer it takes for the Lord to return. But in the first century, when Peter was writing this, people were on the edge of their chairs expecting Jesus to come back at any moment. That's what they longed for. 
That's what they prayed for. They pled with God for the return of Jesus. And here's this audience that Peter's writing to that are exiled. They are living distant. They got dispersed out of Jerusalem and sent into these other lands. Some of them got to go home, but others of them just had to find a new home. And Peter says, it's not a great time for you right now, but you hold on to hope. You hold on to hope because Jesus is coming back. If you have nothing else to hold on to, you hold on to that hope. Jesus is coming back. And because Jesus is coming back, boy, it doesn't matter what's happening around us. We're going to get to realize the hope of glory in his presence. Isn't that exciting? That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It drove the first century church. But the 21st century church tends to ignore it. And we lose sight of that hope. And it's tragic. It's tragic. In fact, the 21st century church tends to lose sight of biblical hope in a lot of different ways. And that's why we need reminders of what it really is. Hope, if you were to get into it biblically, you will find out very quickly in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, that it is one of the three main virtues of the Christian life. Paul would teach in that chapter that at the end of the day, after everything is said and done, there are only three things that remain and only three things that matter. Faith, hope, and love. And he would say the greatest of those three is love, but he puts the other two in close proximity. Faith and hope are in close proximity to love. The three greatest virtues in all of Christianity. So we have to know what hope is if we're actually going to give it the right place and the right credit in our lives. This is how I would define biblical hope. Take a look. Hope is the Christian's attitude toward the future. Now remember, you have the three great virtues, faith, hope, and love. Well, a lot of times, hope and faith seem interchangeable. We want to believe that they're the exact same things. We really do, but they're not. Faith and hope, though they are, are very, very close to one another, are not the same things. Here's a way to think about it. Faith is about trusting God in the present. Hope is trusting God for what is to come. See the difference? One is for the here and now. The other is for what waits. It's for the future. Our hope is in what waits. Now that can be tough for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. I'm not kidding, that can be tough. Because in the here and now, as we're doing everything that we can to hold on to hope, it seems like it, it gets dimmer and dimmer all the time. And that's why you need to know that God reserves an ace up his sleeve for us. In fact, he puts that ace up our sleeve. And you only discover it if you are willing to really dig into biblical hope and see what it is. In order to do that, keep your finger in 1 Peter 1, but join me in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to show you something really cool this morning. I've shown it to you before. I hope it's stuck. If not, let this be a refresher. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Now, we're going to get through some doctrinal stuff, so don't let your mind wander too far. Hang with me. 
For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, all of that doctrinal stuff that we just read is tied to the fact that God promised a child to Abraham and his wife Sarah in their really old age. So that's, that's what that's all about. Now, here we go. Verse 18. In hope, this is speaking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, and who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. Now here's that ace up your sleeve given to you by God, placed there by God. Paul would actually, Peter would put the word completely into hope. But then we get this great teaching. In hope, he believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope. That sounds weird, doesn't it? In hope, he believed against hope. What it really means is this. When it appears that there are no other options, when it appears that all odds are against you, when it appears that you have reached the end of yourself and the end of all human probability, you are now in this particular realm. In hope, you must believe against hope. That is the God zone, if you will. When all human probability and possibility have been exhausted, that's when you, in hope, believe against hope. I am now believing only in what God can do. That is a place of grace. That is a place of God's power. And really, if you study grace in Scripture, that's, that's what it is. It's God's power. It is God's power to do for us what we cannot do on our own. Grace leads us into a place where we hope against all hope. And there we get to realize what only God can do. Now, I want to show you in some practical ways how that works. When you hope against hope and you are relying on grace, God's power to accomplish some incredible things, you can see it actually happen in very practical ways. 
You remember that list that we looked at from Charles Swindoll just a few minutes ago where he was talking about hope? Well, I want to take out the word hope and I want to plug in grace and show you how it works in hope to believe against hope, trusting grace, trusting God's power. Same list. Here we go. When we are trapped in a tunnel of misery, grace leads us out. When we are overworked and exhausted, grace gives us fresh energy. When we are discouraged, grace lifts our spirits. When we are tempted to quit, grace keeps us going. When we lose our way and confusion blurs the destination, grace dulls the edge of panic. When we struggle with a crippling disease or a lingering illness, grace helps us persevere beyond the pain. When we fear the worst, grace brings reminders that God is still in control. When we must endure the consequences of bad decisions, grace fuels our recovery. When we find ourselves unemployed, grace helps us realize our future. When we are forced to sit back and wait, grace gives us the patience to trust. When we feel rejected and abandoned, grace reminds us we're not alone, we'll make it. When we say our final farewell to someone we love, grace makes it possible to get beyond our grief. And I would add one more, just one more. Here it is. When the world looks lost, grace and hope remind us that Jesus is coming back. You see, if we take the first list, where it is defined by hope, and we add grace to it, then we get to see what it means to hope beyond hope, to trust in God's power. Because when you get to the end of yourself and you get to the end of all human possibility, God is not finished. God is not finished. So no matter how discouraged you may get personally or even in a community or a nation, or globally as the community of Christianity, thinking Jesus isn't going to ever come back, and look how bad things are getting. We hope against all hope, and that's where grace really shines. That's the power of God, doing what only God can do. Man, that's an exciting place to be. That is an exciting place to be. And once you know that, it takes you to this second thing that Peter's really teaching in 1 Peter chapter 1, to pursue holiness, to pursue holiness. If I'm going to hope against hope, and I'm going to trust God to do what only God can do, and I want my life to be a reflection of that hope, and I want people to know that I trust God at that level, then I'm going to have to do something in my own personal life that will help bring that message out. And Peter would tell us what that is. We must pursue holiness. Now for a lot of people, the whole idea of holiness is, is foreign because we think it belongs to a saint and saints have to be people that lived an almost perfect life and have died hundreds of years ago and then they got, they got venerated and called a saint and that's the only way to be declared holy. Well, that's not true. That is not true. The Bible would call all Christians to the pursuit of holiness. So let's see if we can't make that make sense. You know what holiness means? It's pretty simple, actually, and it's not too baffling. Holy means different. It just means different. I'm living a different life. 
Where Lot would say, remember this, I am drawn to the things of the world. Abraham said, I'm just drawn to a life that is dedicated solely to the worship of the Lord. So Lot goes down and he builds altars to the world, gets himself in trouble. Abraham goes up into the hill country and he builds altars to the Lord and he lives with God. And it was credited to him as righteousness or holiness. Well, the same thing is true for us. We choose a different path. We choose a different way. And by choosing that different way, we are choosing to stand set apart from the whole world, looking different. But holiness is hard for people. It is hard for people. And it, it really should be. Because to choose holiness, being set apart by God, to walk with God, should require some things that don't really make sense to other people. And part of the reason that it's so hard for us today to wrap our minds around holiness in a, a world that seems to be getting further and further away from Christ is actually laid out in Scripture. As much as we struggle with it, the Bible tells us we should. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to this, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." And then we find a, another passage, happens to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, exact same verses, Paul writing to this same person, Timothy, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In both places, in both books, Paul is telling Timothy that the further we get away from the first coming of Jesus and the longer we wait for the second coming, what Peter refers to as the revelation of Jesus Christ, what John wrote as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the worse things are going to get. That's exactly what he said. And because things are progressively getting worse, it's going to be harder for people to choose a different life. The world's going to look awful appealing. Just might as well give up and go with it. And Paul's saying, you push against that. You push as hard as you can against that. Peter's saying the same thing. You be holy because God is holy. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't fall into that trap. That's exactly what he is teaching. Saw this whole idea illustrated on a graph that just popped up online, and it, it's pretty accurate. Take a look. This is why people struggle with this. We have the constant of the Bible, and then we have the decline of society. 
So when society, all the way back here, was looking at God's word for a little while, they kind of walked closely to his word, and then they just started getting further and further away from it until this is kind of how society is measured today. There's a huge gap between what scripture teaches and what society believes. So holiness is hard. Holiness is hard. But it doesn't have to be. And if you want to grow in holiness... There are some simple ways to do it. The first one, the first one, I would just simply say is growing up in your faith. You got to grow up in your faith. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's go to the book of Hebrews together. Hebrews chapter 6. Verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. We have to grow up in our faith. I like the way the New International Version reads there at the end. The writer of Hebrews is saying, what we long for you to experience is things that accompany salvation. The pursuit of holiness is really the pursuit of growing up, it is growing up. It's recognizing that I start my relationship with God in this beautiful act of grace where I recognize what Jesus did for me on the cross and I enter that relationship. For so many people, we, we just stay right there. We just stay stuck right there saying, yep, I'm saved, I'm a Christian. That's all I care about. I'm just a Christian. Well, grow up. Grow up in your faith. Add to your faith all kinds of other knowledge and understanding. Don't stay stuck. The pursuit of holiness is the ever-growing relationship that we have with God. And the way we do that is by getting into our Bible and studying it. Peter would actually say in 1 Peter chapter 1, For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. All he's doing is directing them to something that they are fully aware of. This idea of growing up in relationship with God unto holiness is an Old Testament idea that is taught in the New Testament. So you study your Bible and carry it over with you so that you grow up in the faith, adding to your salvation all these other things, things that accompany salvation. So you study your Bible. You study your Bible. If you want to pursue holiness, you study your Bible. But you do it for a reason different than you might realize. Here's how I would say it. 
We don't study the Bible to get to know the Bible better. We study the Bible to get to know God better. So get into your Bible and grow in your relationship in holiness. And here's what you will discover. Hope will grow within you. When you pursue holiness, hope will grow within you. And you will start to turn your attention towards the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second coming, longing for it, looking for it, and living for it. So get into your Bible and grow in holiness so that hope can take root and expand within you. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 would give a great warning to the people that don't do that. Peter would pick up on that same thing and what he would really tell us to do is, is get to know Jesus. The rest of 1 Peter chapter 1, the passage that we just read, that's all about who Jesus is. So if you want to get to know God, get to know Jesus. Skipping over to chapter 2 in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter chapter 1, skipping over to chapter 2 in 1 Peter, verse 4, this is what you would read. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So live pursuing holiness that hope will grow within you and you will, listen, you will know Jesus better in the process. So get to know God. And the way to get to know God is getting to know His Son. And you get to know Him first in salvation, and then you add to that salvation so many other things as you grow up in your faith unto holiness that fuels hope. This morning, I want to invite you to stand with us as we wrap up our service. And we'll do that by offering an invitation like we do every week. If you want to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus, why don't you come do that? But I also want to add to that, if you looked through that list that we showed twice and you found yourself on it, and there isn't a lot of hope, at least not that you can see, you need some help hoping beyond hope over some of the situations that you're facing right now, whatever they might be, why don't you respond to this invitation? Go and pray with somebody so that they can pray with you into a place where you can hope beyond hope. You can trust the grace of God. And you can find yourself like Abraham in an unwavering relationship so that you get to experience 
God's goodness. Respond to the invitation. When the service is over, just go over to this door. There'll be people there that'll meet you. Our elders are there. There's some decision counselors that are there. You just go and meet them. And you pray with them and talk with them. If they need to get further answers for you, they'll do it. But you go find hope against all hope. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for what Peter wrote and the passion with which he wrote it. Would you help us pay attention with the same passion that we might grow in our knowledge and our relationship with you in holiness pursuing a different life one that is driven by hope and father keep us ever mindful that you are coming back and help us preach that message lord simply by living a different life a holy hopeful life. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.